Well, we are going to continue through the book of Daniel. And so if you want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, you can. We always have paperback ones at the connections table so that you can follow along. Uh, there is a lot to cover. And I told the guys, hey, this, this sermon may uh, want to try to go long. But listen, it's warmer in here than it is out here. So it may be the one day that you're like, okay, it's okay to be here just a little bit longer. Uh, but we're going to move through this. I think it's exciting. Uh, y'all didn't laugh at being here long, so I'll try to go fast. So I, I, get, I get it. I understand. <clears throat> Um, so with that, that being said, here's what I'd like to do. I want to read all of Daniel chapter 1. I want us to see this story kind of in, in a grand context, and then we're going to jump in to what Daniel uh, is doing in these moments. And so if you will, let's, let's turn to Jan- Daniel chapter 1, and you guys just follow along, try to stay engaged in this story as we read one chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into, the hand, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the, vessel, the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of a royal family and of no, the nobility, youth without blemish, a good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them daily portions of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Then they were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, He found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters, that were in his kingdom. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. So God, we just want to hear from you this morning. We want to see your goodness, your sovereignty, your ruling, your reigning, your provision, your purpose, your mission, and the faithfulness of Daniel and how we can do that in our own lives. And so would you speak to us, help our eyes to see and ears to hear. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So to to lead up to this moment, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here last week, I'd say, hey, go back and listen to that to get the context of what's going on. But you've got the king of Babylon has come in, taken over Israel, God's kingdom, God's chosen people. And eventually he's going to level that that country. He's going to level their temple. Everybody's scattered. You've got this 70 years now of exileship for the people of Israel. And what he's done now is he's taken these young teenage boys, the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest, and he said, I want you to bring them in for kind of a three-year test. And really what he's trying to do with these young men is he's trying to isolate them. He's trying to educate them. He's trying to entice them with his food, with his drink, that he's the supplier or provider of what they need to eventually assimilate them. And this is a pretty good way to take over a country. Right? You take the best and the brightest, you make them start acting like you, names like you, thinking like you, worshiping like you. They go and now they're leaders among those other Jewish people. Eventually the Jewish race is no more and they're just Babylonians. This is, this is the goal. And so part of what's happened now is we're getting into verse 8 and we're going to see that Daniel makes a stand. He understands what's going on in this moment. In this first sentence of Daniel uh, chapter 1 verse 8 is kind of the crux of what we're going to look at today. In, in this, this pagan culture, this place of coming and trying to make him conform to who they are that is outside of who God is, we're going to see a young man, a teenage boy, make a stand because he's resolved. Now, now here's the deal. As we see this, there's, there's three reasons I believe that Daniel is resolved. And, and I think if you and I as both individuals, maybe as parents, as grandparents, can, can begin to understand these same things, and we can begin to live in a way that glorifies God in the midst of a culture that wants us to conform. And so here's the three things we're going to see. Daniel is resolved because he understands his purpose, his purpose to live for the glory of God, to worship him no matter what. He understands who his provision comes from. He understands that there is no king, uh, regardless of him being the ruler of the world, the known world at this time, that's going to be able to provide for him the way that God can. And finally, he understands his mission, the thing that God has done that has sent him into, and this is the reason he's able to be resolved. And so let's look at these this morning. Starting in verse 8, it says this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. Then he asked the chief chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. If you underline, here's the whole thing. Daniel resolved. This word resolve means to decide firmly on a course of action. It's firm determination to do something. So you've got this 13, 14-year-old kid that has resolved that regardless of the cost, I'm, I'm going to stand up for my king because I understand my purpose. My, my purpose is to worship the Lord to bring him glory. And so he resolves then to live this way. Here's what's interesting. 
You've got all these things that have happened up to this point, right? Uh, Daniel's been given a new name. Kind of this taking away some of his, his, the worship of even his, his own self, his name. He's given a new education. They're trying to brainwash him. They're trying to make him think and speak and act and worship the way he worships through education. All of these are kind of outward things. They've isolated him in a place that is not his home. But there, there comes this moment where this, this resolve now has to make, move him to a decision. And it's when they're asking him to do something that in his mind is sin against God. Right? He's in this culture. They're wanting conformity. And the things that are outward, he's going, it's okay. Like, like I can walk through this and trust the Lord. But when you ask me now to sin against the Lord, to defile myself, I have to draw a line in the stand. And I have to begin now to live with resolve. I love in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul lays out for us what it looks like to live with resolve. The, the, the purpose of, of what we were created to do. You will not live with resolve if you don't understand your purpose this morning. Look what Romans 12, 1 through 2 says. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So he's going, because of the forgiveness in Christ of the Lord towards you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's going, I want you to look to Jesus who has provided you forgiveness because he has, he has sacrificed his body on the altar of the Lord so that you might be saved. So now I want you to present your bodies in a way. I want you to live your life in a way that is holy and acceptable to God. This is worship. I think so often we come to church, and, and this is worship, what we're doing. And you're worshiping this morning. We, we have this hour that we're coming and we're in the word and we're singing and we're praising and we're taking communion and we're, we're, we're even worshiping by loving one another well. Like these, this is an hour of worship. But the call of the believer is that 24-7 our life is being laid down in our conduct, our speech, our thought, our actions, the way we treat our, our wife or our husband, our kids, our neighbors, our friends, the things we say. All of these things are, are us laying our life down and saying, I want to live holy and acceptable and pleasing to you. This is worship. This is the call of the believer. And so for you and I, our purpose then to bring God glory and honor and praise is this 24-7 of us laying our life down like our Savior did. It continues on and it says, how do we do this then? Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There is this idea then that spiritual training and the word of God is what will prepare your heart and your mind to be able to live amongst a culture that wants us to conform and yet live for the glory of God. Without spiritual training, without being raised up and ready, you will not be ready for the moment when the culture presses in. It says as we do that and our mind is renewed, there will be testing that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect? What does it look like to live the Christian life? What is your purpose? To glorify God, to live for him uh, by continually renewing your mind on the things of Jesus, and responding to his mercy and forgiveness and laying our life down daily to live for his glory in all that we do. This is your purpose. This is Daniel's purpose. 
there is no way that a 13, 14-year-old kid shows up in the king's palace and says, I am going to resolve not to defile myself unless he has been trained up. There's something that happened while he was back in Israel that prepared him for this moment. Here's what you will not do. You will not fall into holiness. You will not fall into righteous living. You will not fall into living a resolved, purposeful life. There has to be this, these moments where we come and we say, okay, if my purpose is to live for God, then what does it mean for me to be resolved? What, what are tangible ways in my life that I'm not moving? Like things around me can change. Things around me can push in. And I can be in the midst of the darkness of the culture, and yet I will stay resolved. The only way you do that is, is purposeful thought before the moment comes. If you have not resolved in your heart to live for the Lord, when the testing comes, you will fold. I love what um, Jonathan Edwards, he, he had kind of written out some resolutions of his life, and his was pretty easy. He had two resolutions that he wrote out. Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. He purposed in his life that these are the things that I'm going to do regardless of the culture, regardless of the people around me, because I'm going to honor my king. He has saved me, he has changed me, and I will live resolute. And so we get Daniel in this moment going, man, I, I can take a name change. I can take the education, but I, but I won't defile myself. I won't, I won't sin against God. What would it look like, students in this room, if you're a student, for you to enter into school tomorrow with some resolve? That you've said, hey, look, I, I'm not just going to go with the flow of culture. Do you know how hard it is to swim upstream? <laughs> Very few people swim upstream. It is very easy to float and do nothing downstream. And so the call of being resolved then is in a culture that is pushing strong current one way, you're going, I have resolved to swim a different direction in the power of the Spirit. Man, for you to not talk the way other people talk, to not have the actions that other people have, to, to purify yourself in sexuality in your school is going to be different. <laughs> College students, man, you've heard these stats. They've gone up. This is pretty sobering, church. And, and if you're a parent or a grandparent, this should be sobering for you because this is your responsibility, not even mine as the pastor or our kids or our students' ministry. They're now saying up to 80% of church kids leave the faith completely by the time they're done with college. So what that means, if you've got a kid at this church today, and there's 10 of them in your kid's grade, eight of those kids are not going to walk in the faith by the time they're done with college. So maybe your kid's one of two that loves Jesus at the end of college. And I believe that that happens because we don't teach our kids what their purpose is. You know, we, we don't teach our kids who the provider is. Uh, we don't teach our kids what their mission is. And so because we don't understand our purpose... We don't really understand who's providing for us. We don't really understand our mission. They just replicate who we are. And they get to a place where the stream is pushing even harder. And they're going, man, maybe these are the areas I find my purpose. Maybe this is what will provide for me. Maybe this is my mission in life. And if we're not careful, 
as their spiritual mentors, we've missed what God's called us to. Adults, how you live at work, how you conduct your business, how you make money, how you parent your kids, how you spend your time and your money. Grandparents, how are you conduct your legacy? Like what are you doing in these, these last years of life to create a legacy for the glory of God? Do you still understand that you have purpose, that you have a provider and you have a mission? What are the things that God is calling you to resolve so that you might walk for the glory of our King? If you don't have resolve, you will just flow downstream and miss your purpose. You'll miss who the provider is. And you'll miss your mission. But here's the good news, right? That's hard. I'm with you on this, okay? This is hard stuff. Even the parenting stuff I'm going to talk about. These are my own wrestlings. I see it in my own self. But here's the good news. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 9. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What you need, the strength that you need to swim upstream resides in you if you are a believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. He has already given you what you need to be resolved, to live a life of resolve. That power's in you. The question is, are you going to walk in it? Look how he says this, this power resides in us. Grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of its sinful desires. For this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Renew your mind daily. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your not mind. Now begins to produce in us self-control and resolve and steadfastness and godliness. Verse 7, and godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with true, genuine love for people the way Jesus loved people. He says, for the, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will fulfill the mission and the purpose for which you exist if you can live with resolve by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Daniel says, I'm not going to defile myself with the king's food or with the king's drink. Here's the next reason that, 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 that Daniel is resolved. He understands his purpose to glorify God, to live for him 24-7, laying my life down like my Savior did. The next reason he lives resolved is because he understands where his provision comes from. There, there's a lot of commentators will say a lot of different things for why is he not eating the king's food and drinking the wine. Right? This is the moment. They say, now you're going to eat food and drink wine. And there's something about that going in his body that he believes is going to defile him. It's an act of inward sin towards the Lord. Think he can control. He can't control how they're educating him. He can't control the name they just gave him. He can't control the fact that he's been brought in as a, as a slave in the king's court. But he can control what goes in his body. He says, I want to defile myself with the food. Now, here's the things uh, that different commentators will say, right? If, if you know things about Jewish law, their food had to be prepared in a certain way. It's called kosher. They still have kosher food today. And so there's a lot that say, okay, well, this meat and this wine, it wasn't kosher. And so he's going, that's a sin against the Lord. It's probably all of these at some level. 
The next thing that they believe happened a lot was they would take this food in the king's court and before they would bring it to the king, they would sacrifice it to pagan idols. Uh, really what that is, if, well, pagan idols is a nice way just to say demonic forces. Right? You, you've got some type of, in my mind, satanic worship going on in this pagan place and they're offering up to idols and, and to pagan demonic forces this food and then they're bringing it in the court and saying, now I want you to eat this food that was used to worship demonic activity. And so he's going, there's no way. But I also believe there's a lot of commentators, and I, I think this is true. <clears throat> it, it would make sense that King Nebuchadnezzar would go, I want you to be in a place where you have to rely on me for sustenance. And, and so not only is he going, I'm, I'm going to provide your food. He's going, I'm going to give you the best. I want for the next three years for you to eat in a way you've never eaten, to drink in a way you've never drank. I want you to have more than your heart could imagine in my court so that at the end of this, you get so reliant on me that you begin to go, I, you're my source of sustenance. I've got, there's going to come this point where Nebuchadnezzar is going to go, I want you to worship me as God. So he's trying to go, look, you need to be relying on me. I'm your provider. I'm your provision. And man, church, the the enemy still is doing this in non-believers and believers alike all the time. He, he, it is a great tactic for us to forget where our provision comes from. Self-reliance is a really great tactic to not live out your purpose and your mission for God. When I, when I share the gospel with people and you ask someone, hey, do you feel like maybe you're going to go to heaven one day? And they say yes. You ask them why, and they don't give an answer about Jesus. The number, what's the number one answer people give? I'm a good person, right? Like, and they don't think they're perfect. No one does. No one argues with you if you say, hey, we all have sin. Everybody knows that. But there's some type of self-reliance, self-worship that's ingrained in us that says, even though I've got a lot of failure, there's enough of me doing good to be right with the Lord. Self-reliance. And part of what Christ has done, if there was anybody that could have been self-reliant, it was Jesus. And yet he still relied on the Father to provide. He comes to, to earth as you and I. And throughout his ministry, he's leaning on the power of the Spirit and the provision of the Father. Man, self-reliant leaves us to a place where we don't realize that we are dead in our sins and need saving. And so there's this blinder on a lot of people that don't know Jesus that just goes, I don't need saving. <laughs> like, I'm good enough. And this tactic continues in the believer's life, church. I mean, honestly, probably in this community and where we live and probably just the socioeconomic status of you and I in this room, we're pretty self-reliant people. And so what we begin to do is we begin to realize I don't need the Lord for a lot of stuff. <laughs> we, we, we believe a lie. Is he the one that gives breath in your lungs? Yeah. Did he give you the gifting to be able to go and have your job? Did he give you the favor to get your job? Is he the one that, that gave you all that you have? Does he own all of your finances? Absolutely. But we get in this place, this facade, this, this fake world where we're going, I can rely on myself. And when we lose who our provision comes from, we lose our resolve. Because what we begin to do, and, and man, again, this is, this is conviction for my own life, but we're about to get with it, okay? 
When you become self-reliant, you can't pass up an opportunity to get you where you need to be. So what you begin to do is you begin to worship opportunity. Uh, You and I begin to worship people that get us to the place we need to be. You and I begin to, to worship careers that will provide the life that we need. And it's full of worry and emptiness. With our kids, is it wrong that we want them to be successful? Absolutely. That would be stupid to say you don't want your kid to be successful. But if God is not our kid's provider, what you will do is worship every opportunity that's available to make sure your kid gets what they need. And you will sacrifice the things of God for the things of the world because you think the world is going to provide what your kid needs. And if we're not careful, man, we're going to raise up a bunch of kids that go to college and they go, my, my parents didn't teach me where provision comes from. We, we ran this rat race of all these things because they wanted me to be really successful. And so, man, every opportunity for education, every opportunity for sports, every opportunity for music, every opportunity to do whatever, they had me doing that because they were worried that I wouldn't be where I needed to be once I'm out of the house. And when they get out of the house, they're not going to be where you want them to be. They're going to leave the Lord. And so we've got to be resolved, church. The enemy has blinded you and I. And we're about to see what God does when you and I live with resolve. When you and I parent with resolve. We're about to see the Lord do the things that only he can do. I want you to look at this for a second. You know, have y'all heard the saying we're... We're in the world, but we're not what? Christians of the world. Did you know that's not scripture? Did you know you're not going to find that in the Bible? Scripture, scripture teaches something different. <clears throat> it teaches that we're on a mission. And if you don't understand your mission, you won't live with resolve. So, so part of what Daniel has done in this whole thing is he said, the Lord delivered our kingdom up to Babylon. The Lord has placed me. He has sent me to this place. Now, the principle <clears throat> that you and I are in the world and not of the world, I get it. Like, but we got to be careful. You and I aren't of this world. We, we have a different home. We, we are in this world. But what that saying, I think, could possibly do in you and I is that our goal then is to huddle ourselves outside of the world. We're not of this world. We're in it. We're, we don't want to be touched by it. We don't want it to even get close to us. And so let's, let's pull back. Man, we got we to gotta pull back everywhere. Let's not be with these other pagan people. Let's stand strong against these pagan people. And, and man, I'm telling you, that's not what Scripture teaches. Look, look what Jesus says. John 17, he's speaking to the Lord. He's speaking to the Father about his disciples. And this is where we get this saying, but we just got to be careful. John 17, 14 through 20, he says, I've given them, the disciples, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're not of this world. Just as I'm not of this world. Now here's the part. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. (laughs) 
He, he didn't say, I, need, I want you to pull them back, Father. Man, my disciples are going to be out there. It's, it's bad. The culture's bad. The river's strong. Would you just get them out of the river? Just let them stay on the bank until we go home. He says, I want you to keep them from the evil one. I want you to, be, to, to empower them to live for your glory and swim upstream. He says this in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them with truth. Renew your mind. Don't be conformed. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are not of the world, but we're sent to the world. If you don't understand your mission, that you were sent wherever you're at and whatever you're doing for the glory of God, that's your purpose. And he's your provider in the midst of it. If you don't understand that you, you have a mission, that your kid, that your grandkid has been given a mission, you will not live resolved. He has sent us into the world why? Verse 19. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask this for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's going, we're sent so that others may believe. So he, here's what happens, and we're going to have to move quick. Here's what happens then. If he understands his mission, you know what he doesn't do when he says, hey, I want you to eat the king's food and defile yourself? He doesn't pick it. He doesn't just start fighting people. He doesn't just start yelling and going, you, you can kill me now. I'm not eating it. Now, now I'm not going to pretend like there's not moments that that may be necessary. It shouldn't be our first response because he understood he was on a mission. He understood that God's trying to show his glory in the midst of this culture, this pagan culture. And so you know what he does? He asks politely the chief. <laughs> he doesn't stand out and go, man, hey, you're not going to tell me what to do. In the culture, in the place, in the mission that God has sent him, he goes, I'm going to live in a way that is kind and humble. And I'm going to trust you that if I ask a hard question that pushes against the culture, you might be able to do something about it. Maybe this doesn't need to be in my strength. And we see in verse 9 what happens when he asks. God gave Daniel favor. And a lost, pagan, demonic-worshipping human being, in a place of control and power, God gave him favor. If you and I could get to a place that we would understand that to live for God and swim upstream can be done in humility and kindness, and maybe in your job you just say, you know what, I'm not going to work all this overtime and sacrifice my family. Is that okay with you? Could God do something huge? Maybe for your kids you go, you know what, we're not going to go to every academic opportunity. And God, I'm just going to trust that maybe you could still get them into a good college. Maybe you still have a purpose for them that I don't know about. We're not going to go to every single sports opportunity there is so that my kid can get a college scholarship and go play ball because we can't afford college. Maybe you just ask God, could you, could you provide for my kid and the purposes you have? We will not live with resolve if we don't understand our mission. And if we don't trust, God can give favor to his people and wants to do that. And so Daniel asks, and God gives him favor, and we go through this thing, and they start eating fruit and vegetables. I mean, just vegetables and water. 
And if there was ever anything in Scripture, if there's any takeaway today, it's this. If you want to lose weight, they ended up being fatter. You don't have to eat vegetables. They're overrated, okay? So if there's anything today that we've learned, vegetables are overrated. Kids got fat on them. But what happens, God gives supernatural provision. You shouldn't get fatter. You shouldn't have been a plump teenager eating some vegetables and water for 10 days. And yet, swimming upstream, God's able to do what only he can do. To the point that the mission begins to play out. You've got this chief eunuch looking at the God of Israel and these, these kids going, I'm going to get my head cut off if you eat vegetables and water. You're going to look worse than everybody else. Give us 10 days. Watch what our God can do. Instead of picketing, fighting this dude, standing up and going, I'm not going to be moved by this. You can't tell me what to do. Man, he just trusts God. And God moves to the point that this, this guy's like, oh, we're going we're gonna to quit doing vegetables and or all the king's meat and all the wine. It's vegetables and water. He may have been that for everybody. He sees the power of the king and the God of Israel. And as we go through the last part, man, if there's anything that can make its way into our soul, I want you to see this. Adult, grandparent, student, as they finish this three-year test, God keeps giving them favor. Do you understand if God has given you a mission, which he has, he has sent you somewhere, he's going to provide what you need to accomplish it for his glory. And the same is true for your kids. Like whatever purpose he has for your kids, 20 years from now, he's going to get them there and he's going to give them what they need. You don't have to worship opportunity hoping you give them all they need. God will give them what they need. He says, as for these youth, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them among, among all of them. What did they say about these kids? None was found like them. None was found like them in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them. He found them ten times better than anybody else in the kingdom. The people that swam upstream, that didn't go with the flow and go, man, I've got to worship everything else for provision. I'm going, no, I know my purpose. I know my provider. I know my mission. And he goes, I'm going to now show you favor that you're ten times than anybody else. This isn't always how God operates, but there is a principle that if you will honor the Lord, he will show you favor. It doesn't always happen the way we think it should, but this is a principle. You honor the Lord and he will show you favor. Thomas said this a couple weeks ago when he preached, and it's so true. What God is trying to do with resolve and our purpose and our provision and our mission is give you the freedom to say no to good things so you can say yes to God things. Is it possible that in saying yes to good things over and over and over again because you're worried that you've got to have the opportunities for you and your family that you're actually missing the God things that he has for them? That's important, church. But if you don't know your purpose and your, where your provision comes from and your mission, you will not live with resolve and you will say yes to everything, hoping to find something. There's a, there's a general principle, principle, God honors faithfulness with favor. 
He just does. I believe it is possible to say no to some things for my children, but when they get into the place where they're living out their purpose, they are ten times better than everybody else that said yes to everything because God's the one that did it. we got to trust that. <laughs> you got to trust that in your job. You can say no to some things and believe that God will put you in a place where you may be ten times better than everybody else in your company. Here's how I want to end, man. I can't help but think about Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I looked this up this week, man, and it's still just like, <laughs> this, is this, this is Daniel lived out in, in, in a very practical way for us. The founder of Chick-fil-A, S. Truett Cathy, was like in the 40s when he started Chick-fil-A, and he started these principles way back when. I, I've got three quotes from him in his book. I want you to listen to these. Tell me this, is, this doesn't go with everything we just talked about. Their mission, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that he's entrusted to us and to have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. What's his purpose? We're going to glorify God. Who's his provider? He has stewarded everything we have. So we want to do that in a way to fulfill the mission of showing who he is, that people are better because we're here. Listen to this. He said, having worked seven days a week in restaurants open 24 hours, Truett saw the importance of closing on Sundays so that he and his employees could set aside one day to rest and worship if they choose, a practice uphold today, upheld today. He's going, there's something better. <laughs> like, we can work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and yet there's something that God does that is bigger if we don't. Last quote from his book. My brother Ben and I closed our first restaurant on the first Sunday after we opened in 1946. And my children have committed to closing our restaurants on Sunday long after I'm gone. Now listen to this. I believe God honors our decision and sets before us unexpected opportunities to do greater work for him because of our loyalty. The ability to say no to good things leads to great God things. And you know what's amazing? I looked up just how much are they making? Their next competitor is KFC. That's second place in chicken fast food. They're number one. Doing it completely different than the entire culture. Going, we're going to honor God. We're going to bring him glory. We're going to trust he, what we have he's providing and we're going to use it for his mission. We're going to be resolved. Do you know the, the, the times, how, how many more times, how much more times of money they're making than their second person? Ten t would be awesome if it was ten times, wouldn't it? That would have been just perfect. Uh, no. Uh, two times the second place competitor. Double the profits. And KFC has like 3,000 more stores. Like double the amount of stores. And you know what? The rest of the competitors, Popeyes, all those guys, they are about ten times more. Why? I believe God shows favor when we honor him. I believe God is able to, to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than we can think, ask, or imagine when we understand our purpose and who our provision comes from and our provider and our mission. Man, and I'm telling you, church, for you and your, your personal life, for me and my personal life, if we can resolve to live for the glory of God, regardless of what we think it might do swimming upstream, God can do so much more than you could ever think. You will fulfill your mission. Look how this ends, the last verse. You would read over this and almost not even think about it. 
Verse 21 is actually at the end of the 70 years. And it says, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This other king comes in, takes over Babylon, and because Daniel lived out his purpose and his mission, trusting in his provider, he gained favor with the king. And the king said, Man, Israel, I want you to return home. You read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. King Cyrus is the one who sent them on because Daniel was faithful. And my prayer for you and and for me on a very practical level is that we would steward our lives with resolve. That when you you go out tomorrow, you know you've got a purpose to glorify God with all that you have. And he has gifted you with so many resources, but he's your provider. And he's given you a very specific mission. It's not to huddle up on the bank of the river. It's to go and to spread Jesus wherever you're at. And he's already got those plans for your children. Whatever he wants in your children, he's going to provide their needs. He just will. So I want us to be a church, especially just a church full of young families, that, that you and I, if you got kids my age, we get my kids out of the house, and hopefully after that too, we, we get our kids out of the house and they go to college, and my kid, I got three kids. I, I don't want just two of them following Jesus after it's done. Like I want our kids to, to love the Lord because we've taught them they have purpose and that God's their provider. Not all the opportunities that the world said, you, got, you better get in this stuff. You better do this. You're not going to be ready. And man, our kids live for the glory of God and whatever their mission field is, wherever he calls them, whatever place, and that they are 10 times above the others because God is showing them favor because they live with resolve. That's my hope for you and I. Let's pray. And so God, I thank you. <laughs> Daniel's not the hero here. Again, you are. You gave favor. You saved him and made him your child and gave him purpose. You sent him into a place for your mission. God, let us be a people that live with resolve. And the church for too long has just been pushed down the stream of culture. And it's hard, Lord. Man, this is, this is, this is difficult for me. <laughs> and so we're trusting in what you say in 1 Peter, that you've given us all that we need in the power of the Spirit to accomplish this. And so we're begging. We're, we're, we're praying that we could have the blinders off of our eyes. That in every moment that we live our life, we're going, I want to lay my life down as a sacrifice of worship. And my, my paycheck's not coming from my job. It's coming from you. And my mission is to be of, not of this world, but sent into it for your glory. There's something bigger, Lord. Man, let us see it. Let us live in it. Let our kids and our grandkids and their kids live in this and walk in this, the favor of God. So help us to trust. Help us to live resolved. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.